This is Aliens and Artists, part two of our conversation with Peter Robbins. On the front lawn of their childhood home, Peter and his sister Helen experienced a shared sighting of numerous UFOs in broad daylight, which for her was then followed by an abduction by non-human entities. Over 14 years after that momentous day, they finally began to speak openly with each other about what happened. After Helen told me this, my first question to her was, all these years have gone by, and you're telling me that you've never forgotten this, that these memories were all conscious. How come we never talked about this? And she said, do you remember that afternoon? I came up to you and I said, do you want to talk about this? And you said, no. You said it in such a way I understood you really didn't want to talk about it. And you're my brother. I respect you. I love you. One day led to the next week, the next month, the next year, and here we are. But I think I would have talked to you about it soon, like in the next month or two, about it more than usual. I said, well, what, what do you think? What do you feel when you think about it? She said, it makes me feel special. And I never felt the need to tell anybody about it, not even, you know, my closest girlfriend or anything. And here we are. Again, the next day she came over to the house. That afternoon I did this painting, which of course I still have. And we agreed that it was five. And then we started to talk about it regularly and what it meant. She, at the time, again, was um, a dedicated poet. But her boyfriend, Albert, within the next year, next couple of months, had done something that changed her life. He said, give me some of your poems, and I'll put them to music and run them past the guys. And if they like the songs, we'll put them on our next album, which they did. And that album was an iconic Blue Oyster Cult album called Agents of Fortune. Included songs by Patti Smith, who was at the time the girlfriend of their brilliant keyboardist, the late uh, Alan Lanier, a wonderful musician and a very deep guy. And that record then went gold and then went platinum. And I worked with the guys and Columbia Records. I wasn't the art director, but I, I worked as an intermediary with the painter, Lynn Curley, a wonderful illustrator, painter who's still out there, uh, to get the cover just the way they wanted it. So Helen and I both ended up, uh, she with her first gold and then platinum album, me with my only gold and platinum album, and that part of our career started to take off. And the next thing Helen knew, she was receiving regular, fairly substantial royalty checks from Columbia Records, and she decided she wanted to perform. And this dovetailed into a new vanguard movement in popular music that was taking hold right then and there on the Lower East Side and in London the year before came to be known as punk. And she became a regular with her band. And for 10 years, she performed with the band, different musicians as time passed, called the Helen Wheels Band and opened for Iggy, for the Talking Heads, for the Dictators, for Blondie, and she was the one who never quite got the big contract, but she was a fixture in the club scene in Lower Manhattan and wrote brilliant songs. 
probably several hundred songs with Albert, but collaborated with many great musicians over the years. I continued to play at being an artist, but my obsession was profound. From the time I really mastered reading, I, I love books as well as reading. And really, before I was a teenager, I was starting to build a library. It's probably the most valuable, most wonderful thing that I have. Several thousand carefully selected books that I'm always adding to. But I realized after some months, the art books that I had focused on buying for years, I wasn't doing that as much. I was haunting the used bookstores and buying UFO books and reading them. I had no idea there was something called ufology. I didn't know anybody that was interested in it. I didn't know there were people out there doing this work. And I assumed they were all crazy because they believed in flying saucers. But Helen and I uh, were sane, and we knew they were real. And it was some months before I started to read the literature. Again, this is all decades pre-digital and internet. And there were newsletters and magazines that I started to see on the stands. They were always there, but I looked past them. I met my first mentor, a wonderful gentleman named Coleman von Kavetsky, who during World War II had been a staff officer in the Royal Hungarian Army. He was in charge of all photo reconnaissance during the war for the Hungarian Army, Hungarian military, and also had been a film director before the war and oversaw the making of film strips for training purposes. Uh, we did the same in the States, I guess most militaries do. He lived in Queens, New York. I went out to meet him, and being Jewish, I thought, this is going to be interesting, because this guy, the Hungarians were allies of the Nazis during the war, and what's this going to be like? And I basically, by the end of that afternoon, just fell in love with this guy. He started by telling me the story of his life and how, you know, once the war had started, the staff officers realized that they had been brilliantly lured into a military relationship with the Nazis out of a hatred of communism, but that they had linked up with something possibly worse. And in the last months of the war, staff officers were told to desert and to do all they could to take their families and make their way to the American lines, because if the Russians found them, they would be killed, and their families would be killed. And he described to me uh, a night of hiding through the night in the woods with his wife and infant son, and making their way to the American lines where he was interrogated, and then, I guess, kind of leveled his karma in a way for the next seven years. He worked exclusively with an agency that helped to reunite Jewish refugees who had lost relatives in the camps during the war and put these families back together. And by 1952, to, I guess, thank him, honor him, respect what he had done, he was invited to emigrate to the United States, which he did and arrived not long before the very famous July 1952 overflights of truly discernible crafts over Washington, and famous photographs taken over the Capitol building of formations of UFOs. That should have changed the world, but it didn't, and became 
profoundly interested in the subject from a photoanalytic point of view. Coleman introduced me to my second mentor, who was a tough, no-nonsense, Catholic Italian-American New York City police detective named Pete Mazzola. Pete was incredibly charismatic. He was a tough, no-nonsense cop, distinguished himself in duty repeatedly. He had been shot. He had been stabbed. And he had a lot of respect from fellow detectives. But he also made no bones about the fact that he took the subject of UFOs very seriously, had become a crack UFO investigator. In the 1970s, he was one of the first people in the NYPD who had been specially trained in hypnotic regression to do criminal investigations. At the time, voice stress analysis technology was bulky. Um, now you can get something for your computer to do it. But he was so respected for this, for the work that he did as a police officer, that the John Jay Police Academy in New York allowed him to use their VSA technology to run first-generation audio tapes of hypnotic regressions and interviews with alleged experiencers and abductees to calibrate the truth of what they were saying. I did my first regressive hypnosis with a friend of mine who had simply taken a course in hypnosis. Got very little out of it. Pete's was much more in-depth, much more professional, with a full readout of the calibrations in terms of the truthfulness registered with the technology. Uh, both Helen and I underwent hypnotic regression with him. And then I met Bud Hopkins. I met Bud because less than a year into my obsession, I was walking by a newsstand in midtown Manhattan and noticed that there was an article on a UFO case, front page article on uh, a weekly publication, much more never associated with UFOs, called The Village Voice a progressive, muckraking newspaper mostly. And I bought it and took it home. And I read it in one sitting. And it was the best damned thing I had read on this phenomena since Helen and I had had this conversation. It was an investigation into a Bud's first case involving a man who had a shop in his neighborhood in Chelsea in Lower Manhattan on West 16th Street, the street that he lived on for over 50 years in the city. And it was a brilliant investigation and very grounded, very logical with extraordinary evidence. And I thought, whoever this is, I have to meet him. But the New York art world is a fairly small, incestuous place. And I knew that there was a late period abstract expressionist named Bud Hopkins, spelled with two Ds. And could this not be the same person? I basically took out the New York City phone book, which was a big damn book, and looked him up. And there was only one Bud Hopkins in the phone book. And I cold called him. This would have been late 75, I think early 76. And I introduced myself as a painter who was teaching at the School of Visual Arts and who had had a profound UFO sighting as a youngster, but whose sister seems to have been taken. Bud listened to me, and the first question he asked me was, tell me about your art. Well, I did, and he was decidedly, by what he didn't say and quiet, not impressed. <laughs> 
He was not a big fan of conceptual or minimal art, but he was intrigued enough with my sister's experience to invite me not long after to come and visit him and have a cup of coffee and talk. Later that week, I showed up at his doorstep. There he was, smile, handshake. We walked up the stairs. His studio, as I would quickly learn, was on the lower floors, and he had a a floor-through loft where he and his wife and daughter lived. April, his wife, was an art historian. Daughter Grace was probably pre-adolescent at the time. And we sat at his kitchen table, and we talked about UFOs, and we talked about art, and we talked about life. I remember thinking, gee, what a cool afternoon, and what a cool guy, and saw his studio and liked his work having no idea that this would become one of the most important friendships of my life and that over the next 35 years, we would have endless cups of coffee at that kitchen table and not more than a, a lot more than a few shots of scotch. And Bud was just beginning to study this most disturbing, most complex aspect of the UFO phenomena, the so-called abductions of people by non-human intelligences. However, we're still half a dozen years, five years away from the publication of his first book, which made a huge splash in the world of UFO studies, and in fact expanded beyond that by adding a term to the English language that people, even if they're not in the field, know very often is associated with it. The book was called Missing Time. And that was published in 1981. For those interim years, um, we built a friendship based on our love of New York City, love of the art world, love of art history, our deep fascination with the subject of UFOs. He met Helen. Bud had fairly recently studied hypnotic regression. And as a mark of his deep sense of responsibility as a practitioner, He worked under the tutorage of a very distinguished psychologist who was one of the pioneers of regressive hypnosis uh, in the 70s named Dr. Aphrodite Clamar. I mean, for seven years, he worked with her guidance. Very few people do that today with a mentor. About a year into our friendship, I mentioned to Bud that the School of Visual Arts was always looking for what we'll call interesting speakers. And if he was interested, uh, I would propose to the director of the school, Dr. Silas Rhodes, uh, another very impacting person in my life, that I was now into this subject, studying it seriously. And I had a friend who also was a painter, not unknown. Dr. Rhodes knew who Bud was. And the next thing we knew, in 1977, we were doing our very first UFO talks on the stage of the auditorium of uh, the School of Visual Arts together. Bud brought two people with him. He brought a old-time UFO researcher who uh, worked with APRO, which was the forerunner of MUFON, I guess you could say, with him to also speak about it. And he brought the subject of his first investigation, George Obarski. George was a tough no American archetype. I think he had been in the Marines during the war, Catholic, barrel-chested, crew-cut, and George owned a liquor store on West 16th Street, where Bud would buy his scotch. He was a Cuddy Sark drinker. That was his brand. As Bud told me, I think it was at our first meeting, 
he became interested in the subject about 10 years earlier when he was walking along a beach in Cape Cod, where he spent the summers, and saw a disc-shaped object tracking over the water. It was kind of an overcast day, but it was clear. And he stressed that this didn't change his life, but he never forgot it. And it stayed a subject of interest for him from that point on. What did change Bud's life was one afternoon, heading down the block, goes in, you know, knows George well enough to exchange the time of day with him. They know each other's names. And George is very withdrawn. He is not his usual outgoing, somewhat chipper self. And Bud inquires, you know, something up? No, no, nothing. But Bud pushes. He really likes the guy. And something is obviously off. And George says in so many words, Bud, if I tell you, you'll think I'm crazy. Bud says, try me. And George tells him. Some months earlier, he had been doing an inventory and had been there late. He was heading back to Jersey along the coast road and at about 86th Street. He's listening to the radio, really no traffic, and it starts to static, and the static is getting louder. And he observes at that point in his rearview mirror, there's a car, or what seems to be a car coming up behind him. And the lights are getting bigger, and it comes up right behind him and then rises and goes up over his car by about 10 feet or so, comes down some yards in front of the car and continues up the road. It's not a car. It's this disc-shaped object, nice as you please, going up middle of the night, the Jersey Road, and it bears left and he watches, he slows down to like no miles an hour, and he watches as it goes out 100 yards or so into field and comes down. And as it does, he observes what we'll call, for lack of a more descriptive phrase, retractable landing gear coming down. It lands. He's mesmerized. He watches as something comes down from it, a walkway. And then he observes a number of small beings coming down the walkway. They're close enough he can see they have things in their hands. And they immediately start taking soil and putting it in small containers and then go back up the rampway. The ramp comes up, the craft rises, the landing apparatus retracts, it tips slightly, and in a matter of moments, it's no bigger than a star. George is telling Bud this, and I'm remembering Bud telling me this. He said, Bud, I went home, I got in bed, and for the first time since my wife died some years ago, I just cried and prayed to Jesus. I thought I must be going crazy, but I knew what I saw. George shared a house with his adult son, who worked a night shift. And about dawn, son comes home, checks in on his dad, who is really in not good shape. He tells him what happened. His son hears him out and says, Dad, it's not that I don't believe you. I just have to check this out for myself. The son then goes back to where his dad described the event happened, 
pulls off the road, walks out into the field, finds three circular impressions equidistant from each other, some disturbance in the dirt, comes back home, reports to his dad that he believes him. So Bud and I did our first talks together. Meanwhile, I'm still trying to process what the hell we saw and what happened to Helen. The culture was very different than Stuart. There were UFO movies, you know, but not like there are now. By the way, I think that um, researchers working for Steven Spielberg took that description of George's that he gave Bud and used it as one of the wonderful scenes early on in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where a craft goes over Richard Dreyfuss's car. Anyway, I was not adjusting well. And I really didn't have anybody to talk to about this except for Helen, Coleman to a degree, then Pete. But I couldn't stop thinking about it. And it got so bad that I remember very specifically, I was walking east on 23rd Street, and my mind went into a split screen. On one side of the screen was me walking down East 23rd Street, just as I was doing. On the other side was me as the B actor, Kevin McCarthy at the climax ending of one of my all-time favorite B-movies, The Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1956, where McCarthy has just escaped from the pod people and is now standing in the middle of the highway screaming at trucks and cars that are passing, they're here, they're here, you're next, you're next. And then it dissolves and goes to him at the end of his flashback, trying to describe it to police at the police station and anybody that knows the film knows that scene. But I thought, shit, I'm this close to running into the road and screaming at people. I, I really need to get a hold of this. When I was 19, about 10 years earlier, I was introduced to the work of the greatest scientific mind still to this day that I constantly reference in my life, and one of the great social scientists as well, Dr. Wilhelm Reich. I had read many of his books over the previous 10 years, and kind of as a footnote in my mind, knew toward the end of his life, he observed UFOs, he studied them, he made certain deductions and conclusions, published a book, published posthumously a month after he died, called Contact with Space, which I had no interest in reading. I only wish I had a copy of it now. Uh, 500 copies were printed, and it's a very valuable book, as well as a fascinating one. I do have several Xerox copies. But I thought, if Dr. Reich were alive, he would take me seriously. And one way or another, I learned that his former first assistant for the last 11 years of his life, Dr. Ellsworth F. Baker, a brilliant psychotherapist who Reich had trained to do the therapy that he had pioneered and then to train other doctors after Reich had passed in 1957, was not only alive, but still a practicing medical organomist, the term that we use for these highly specialized psychotherapists, and that, in fact, he had a practice. He was well into his 70s at the time, uh, out of his home in Red Bank, New Jersey, but also in, on the Upper East Side facing the river. And I thought, this guy is alive. I have to meet him. And I found his phone number in the book. I worked out a little thing I was going to tell him. I put together a little package of information thinking that uh, he might be interested in 
what's new in UFO research. Uh, I was an expert almost a year into the subject. Oy vey. And he picked up the phone. I gave him my quick little talk. He thanked me and said, I'm busy right now. Can you call me back this time next week? I called him back six weeks in a row. I was not aware at the time, number one, that this is a device that some professionals use to assess the level of your intention to see them, and also that he was always with the patient. Anyway, um, on the sixth call, he said, I can see you next week, Mr. Robbins. Will you come in at such and such a time? I thought, hmm, sounds like he thinks I want, I'm interested in therapy, which I was, but wasn't willing to fully admit. And I went in, gave him my little talk. He then asked me, why are you here? I thought I had just told him why I was here. I dug deeper, said more. I see, he said, why are you here? And I got very upset, very upset, and became quite undone. Told him why I was there. I really needed help with this subject. And I knew from having read some of his work that he had had at least one UFO sighting with Dr. Reich while they were in a weather modification, a cloud busting operation in the state of Maine. And he had another sighting over his home in Red Bank as well. And over the next years, Dr. Baker not only helped me normalize my attitude about this, I wasn't crazy, the world was, and that this was important work. Good people were needed in it level-headed people who were pragmatic because it was a field with a lot of mystical thinking. And I was able to normalize my attitude to the subject and continued on from there. In 1981, again, Missing Time was published and overnight, quite literally, Bud Hopkins, the painter, became equally, if not better known around the world, as Bud Hopkins, the pioneering investigator of UFO abductions, and started to get mail from all over the country and all over the world, found himself in the position of needing some assistance. I had helped out around the studio on and off in those intervening years, but I then started to work for him part-time, volunteer, to answer people who were writing him. And that began the professional aspect of our relationship. His next book, Missing Time, which was a real international bestseller, describing the case of one Debbie Jordan, her pseudonym, real name, Debbie Jordan Cabell, still remains a very dear friend of mine, lives where she lived when it happened in Indiana, a brilliant case, brilliantly investigated. And then he became a star in the firmament of UFO studies in no uncertain terms. As you've noted in our private discussions, nothing ever dissuaded him from his focus on continuing on as a painter and to a degree a sculptor, I was honored to help. And for on and off about half of our 35-year friendship, I was attached at the hip. He, I believe, was involved in more than 800 separate investigations over his ufological career. I know because I did a lot of the intake interviews, answered the mail, sat in at either his request or the request of the individual witnessing hypnotic regressions, and was right there with him from the very first support group meeting, and so many meetings with so many people from around the States and the UK and a wider area. He became not just one of my dearest friends, a mentor, a role model, 
a confidant. I'm proud to say I also was a confidant of his over the years. It was a life-changing experience for me, and I can't think of anybody more fortunate in the field. By that point, my obsession had become, this is what I'm doing. And even though I'm not making much money doing it, I'm a professional. I had started to get articles published. I was speaking at conferences. And it was a wonderful thread that ran through my life and lasted with Bud right up until he passed in August of 2011. Peter, when you and Helen did the regression work with Pete Mazzola and perhaps with Dr. Baker, I'm not sure, did Helen recall other experiences that had occurred throughout her life? I ask because the entities had conveyed to her telepathically, you've seen us before you will see us again, which implies a lifelong connection, perhaps. Did she, or you, recall other experiences through hypnosis? Well, first, no, I never recalled any other experiences. First, she had the abduction experience. I was a witness to the sighting that precipitated it. I should also say, going back to something I said earlier, also, Dr. Baker did not do hypnotic regression. That flash of blue that I experienced before I passed out, and that feeling of absolute rage momentarily that I experienced and repressed when I came out of having been knocked out, I did explore with Dr. Baker. The blue flash I explored with Pete Mazzola and with Bud, and it was a very real memory with one of them. I don't remember which one right now. I have those tapes somewhere. But it was experiencing that flash of light. The feeling of rage Dr. Baker felt related to me as a little kid, well, um, again, with the sophistication of leave it to beaver, perceiving this most shattering thing I've ever seen in my life, turning and running into the house to tell my mother, and then being knocked out knocked down by these other intelligences, not connecting up with my sister being taken, of course. But in that moment of waking, I clearly understood that there was a connection between my going unconscious while running away in a state of high anxiety and what they did, which made me very angry. And like a lot of kids, you're not brought up to express anger. You're brought up to be nice and behave. And so I clamped down on it. But boy, did I deal with that anger in therapy. And that was very healthy for me. Helen, in fact, did recall several other events in her life, two of which she explored in some depth with Bud, and one that happened as an adult. I had what I will describe as two minor but very real UFO sightings as far as I'm concerned and one major one. So I'm not somebody this, this has happened to on any kind of regular basis. Camping out in the late 60s with my then best friend and still best friend, we were in Maine watching and looking up at the beautiful night sky and looking at what I perceived to be a very boring weather satellite just clicking along at a very low speed. And I happened to be watching it as it simply 
made a dramatic turn. Satellites don't do that, and I always kept that memory. It didn't do anything else. It just continued on a new trajectory. But that was non-standard. Then in 1989, back in Maine, I had been working in Summerstock Theater. I, I worked for years in off-Broadway theater management, and you'd be surprised how many actors take this seriously. I had been an assistant director on a Chekhov's The Seagull. I needed a couple of days off. We were working six days a week. One of the uh, lighting guys lived in Maine. He's married to one of the actresses in the company, and they invited me to spend a few days with them several hours drive north in really rural Maine. And we got there at about dusk. Marielle went into the kitchen to start dinner. I remember it very well because it was August 28th of 1989, because that was my birthday. And Marielle brought us out each a glass of champagne, and we looked at the sky, and it was gorgeous. It wasn't quite Aurora Borealis, but it was a sky that was just illuminated with stars. Once again, looking at a boring little weather satellite, and John joked with me that wouldn't that be funny if that was a UFO, and you know, you're a UFO person. And within a matter of minutes, we both watched as it stopped, it pulsated. It turned bluish, it zigzagged several times, and then took off like a shot in the night and was gone. His reaction was, was uh, <laughs> he, was, he was quite troubled by it and very agitated. And, you know, uh, I, I can't ever talk about this. This is crazy. People won't believe it. And I responded to the effect that, well, I sure can't talk about it. And they are real. And there you go. My only other UFO-related sighting was, was massive, and that was on the night of February 18, 1988, going to Suffolk, England for my very first of several dozen trips over the years to begin an on-location investigation of the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident, which resulted in the publication of a book some years later. And what was that event in 1988, if I can ask? Oh, yeah, that was major. My then co-author and I had just visited the base where he had been stationed in 1980. The events themselves happened over a series of three nights in December of 1980. The base was only a mile and a quarter or so from the bed and breakfast we'd been staying at. And it was quite a night for me. Um, we had come in from London that afternoon, arrived in the country only the day before. We observed as we were leaving the base area a, a disc-shaped object in the sky over the Rendlesham Forest. And at that moment, I turned on one of the microcassette recorders I had. I traveled with two of them, machines break down, and asked him if he observed it. And over the next hour and a half, we observed several dozen different types of UFO phenomena from fully articulated disks to small star-shaped objects. It's all in the book, Left at East Gate, carefully transcribed by me. Um, it was so overwhelming to me that I, I know I went into some level of physiological shock. And I'm speaking from a technical point of view because I had trained a year or so before to do, um, be a crisis intervention volunteer. I knew the signs. Adrenaline dump, epinephrine dump, auditory exclusion, tunnel vision. And it culminated with the appearance of a 
fully articulated object lighting up at the far end of the field. It was still going on when we walked out of the area and just exhausted. I will never forget that. That was another rare, life-changing night for me. Peter, from a 30,000-foot view, what do you think we're dealing with here? Marshalling your comprehensive life experience, what happened to you and your sister Helen, adding to it your decades of assiduous research and study. What's the big picture when it comes to humans and this constellation of exotic phenomena? I know that binary explanations have jumped the shark, so to speak, but as a jumping-off point, is the overall outlook for humans good or bad concerning this enigma? There are people who are profoundly invested in UFO studies that all, I call them mother intelligences, and I think we're dealing with a myriad of them, probably with the same possibilities of relationships to the human race as we have to each other, who insist that they are all good, and other people, they are all bad. And there's a dichotomy there that has kept people arguing for generations, if not longer. What we come to here is that within this field, which is so filled with what an outsider would call wild claims. It's maddeningly difficult to establish in full empirical terms the truth of certain things. I don't, and I've never had the equivalent of a carburetor or spark plug from a extraterrestrial or interdimensional craft. I've never seen in a laboratory the hand of a gray alien I don't have any deep contacts within the intelligence community with some colleagues claim, telling me things that they then believe are true through documentation or other evidence or alleged evidence, but always noted that good and bad have nothing to do with it. And Dr. Jacobs as well uh, impressed upon me early time that they're involved in some kind of program. The original euphemism was that they were experimenting on us. I think that's very dated. (laughs) Whatever they're involved in, they're very clear about. We're doing our best to wrap our heads around it, given meaning in human terms, and it doesn't have to do with good or bad, I don't believe. They're just doing what they do for the reasons that they do it, and what it's leading toward, for me, is the profound question. Because coming out of abduction studies, we now have a very clear understanding of things, again, to an outsider that sound like the hocus kind of science fiction, but in fact are real, that they follow bloodlines, that they, and when I say they, I mean that group or groups of these other intelligences that are involved in the abduction phenomena, which may be rather limited in the world of other beings from other places and dimensions, of interbreeding, that there are beings that we refer to um, in the studies as hybrids that are part us, that are part them. There is a long and well-documented history, and I mean that in terms of the records of certain obstetricians, physicians, psychotherapists of women who have been presented with these part us, part them beings, but observed that no matter what their intentions or desires, that we can't trust them 
at face value any more than we can trust certain human beings at face value. And I feel that's very true. The idea of screen memories, of putting things in your head, either to diminish the anxiety of what you'd be experiencing if you were perceiving it as it was really and actually happening in front of you, or for their own purposes to affect human thinking and build up a certain part of the human population that absolutely takes seriously certain things that have been put in their thoughts, either because they're true or they're not true. And whatever it is, it's part of their program. Let's talk about the manner in which we are deceived by a phenomenon that is real. The phenomenon is genuine, and part of its nature is deception, duplicity. How do you, Peter, disentangle these bona fide beings and phenomena from the prismatic mirages which they also effuse? Other intelligences are, in fact, floating people out of their beds, taking them out of their moving cars, bringing them to a neutral space, examining them, doing procedures on them, floating them back through their plate glass window, putting them back in bed, implanting sperm ova, creating hybrid beings, and who knows where they are or what they're up to. That's real. It's an extraordinary challenge. And again, if you're sincere enough, if you can provide the even just the edges of something that seems viable to some people, people want to believe. It's not that different than religious belief. It's one of the reasons that I have always approached the work as a pragmatist and inspired by one of my childhood heroes, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes, Holmes' idea of deductive reasoning, that when you are faced with a mystery and an investigation ensues, and you begin by investigating the most mundane, everyday explanation as fully as possible. If nothing is gained from that, you simply take one simple step up to the second most boring mundane explanation and, and examine that. And finally, if you go through all of the rational possibilities and you still haven't been able to crack it, that's when things get really interesting. It's not nearly as sexy or exotic as some of my colleagues who immediately go right to that, oh my gosh, it must be this. For me, I have to be extra careful because of what happened with my sister, because I took her so seriously. And that seriousness has panned out to be reinforced in hundreds of cases that I'm aware of, and because of my own limited but really uh, unforgettable experiences, because of the preponderance of physical evidences, the kinds of things that you could bring into a court of law, physiological changes to organic material, histories in the area, histories within the family, photographic evidence, and that's another thing. Since the advent of digital photography, and the sophistication of it, and platforms, facilities like Photoshop, it's very difficult to trust any image per se, unless it is fully backed up by ideally multiple accounts from profoundly believable people who are willing to make themselves available for deeper investigation 
and not just, gee, that looks good, that must be real, gosh, they're real. Yes, they are, but that's not the place to look. We have 10 years ago in an area like ufology, which is sort of like the Wild West on a certain West level to start with, deeper, more extreme conspiracies hovered at the edges. Now, conspiracy is mainstream thinking uh, generated from the president of the United States right on down. My belief, no matter how wild, no matter how unsubstantiated, no matter how undocumented, is worth every bit as much as your decades of scholarship, your degrees, your studies, uh, your investigations. And that is not a good thing. Let's briefly revisit the session in which Helen went into one of her experiences with Bud Hopkins. You had mentioned she had a couple of experiences she explored with Bud in depth. One in particular, which was quite profound. Are you at liberty to share any of what she recalled in that work, or is that out of bounds? Not out of bounds at all. Um, The events, the memories that I've referred to all relate to the experience she had at 12 years old that was precipitated by the sighting that we had together. One that I remember her telling me about that had happened certainly when she was in her late 20s or early 30s involved her and her then boyfriend and a couple that they were very close to. The guy and the other couple Charlie, a sweet guy, he had a company in New York City that it dealt in vehicles, but vehicles that were rented to films. They had taken out some wonderful vintage Cadillac convertible to take a drive out to uh, Long Island. And all four of them observed a disc-shaped object, and then all four of them shared a missing time experience ended up in a very different location than they remember being when they first saw the craft. Two of the people were very uncomfortable with it and didn't want to talk about it after the fact. Helen and the other person were very aware of it and did discuss it further as their friendship developed. But I would actually have to re-listen to her audio tapes, which I have not done in years. Again, my sister's been gone for years and I miss her every day. But, you know, the pain of loss diminishes over the time, but the day-to-day reality of a great sense of humor or just the love that you felt for somebody is um, something else. One of the wonderful things, if you are a, a vocal artist, if you're a singer, is that voice goes on into the future. And I still and always will enjoy listening to recordings of her work, just starting out raw from the heart and much more accomplished in later years, having studied with one of uh, City's great opera coaches and just really much more professional training. But listening to the hypnotic regressions, it still brings up a lot of strong feelings for me. And remembering that, you know, this little kid was taken and that although they are able to do remarkable things and have it not feel traumatic at the time, there is still upset attached. And that's something that she certainly explored with Bud Hopkins. 
I know you're at a point where you're considering working on your art again. A phrase which orbited my awareness in preparing for our talk was, Artist Interrupted. At that moment, decades ago, as your burgeoning career was coming to life, the reemergence of that seminal event in which you and Helen shared the experience with the craft, the entities, it factored so prominently in your life, taking a different course entirely. Of course, those of us in ufology are the benefactors of that redirection. But decades later, as you ponder a return to artwork, how does it feel? Describe the thaw of that dormant calling. Let me flash back first to one uncompleted thought. I had mentioned that several months before that memory returned in February, I think of 75, this young up-and-coming art dealer uh, had come to my loft to see my work, liked it enough to make an appointment to come back. So it's now several months after this, and I'm one step away from Richard Dreyfuss's character in Close Encounters, sitting at the dining table, making the devil's tower with mashed potatoes and saying this means something. I can't stop drawing disc-shaped objects. I'm completely out of control. I fill up pages with ellipses. Then I'll take a break and draw like an Ademski-type saucer. Then I'll fill a large piece of Inger's French heavyweight drawing paper with careful pencil drawings of different type of disc-shaped phenomena. Then I'll go back almost like a rosary, just except just drawing one ellipse after another ellipse after another ellipse connected to each other. In my own little world, it all makes sense to me. I I'm, I'm, have this experience. I'm now obsessed with it. I get it. And Mary makes an appointment um, to come back. I'm not even thinking, Stuart, about what she'll make of all this until I, I'm embarrassed to say she walks in the studio and I open the portfolio. And one look from her, she starts going through these drawings. I experienced a profound sense of embarrassment, awkwardness, worse, of putting her on a spot. I mean, this woman was nothing other than professional and trusted that what she had seen in my work half a year before she'd now be seeing a logical development from. And based on that, I would either be invited to be a client or not. And I was quite mortified, and I thought, I can blurt out what happened and why I'm doing this now and not what I might have been doing. I thought, that's even crazier. And it was, I don't know, it was a very quiet minute or two minutes or whatever that she went through these large paper drawings and paintings on paper. And then I think with a lot of grace, did her best to say in so many words, obviously something has happened that has affected your work in a very dramatic way that I would have not have predicted. And I have to tell you, I'm uncomfortable with it. And wherever you're going with this, in so many words, I wish you well. But I don't think 
who were right for each other, and good luck. Well, Mary, whose full name is Mary Boone, went on to start a gallery downtown, first out of her apartment, out of her living room, and then in a gallery space. Her first two artists were Julian Schnabel and David Sally. Look them up. They went on to become major international players. And Mary Boone went on to become not just one of the most successful, influential gallery dealers and forces in the world of modern art in New York or in America, but in the world. And I believe um, there is still a Mary Boone Gallery with Mary at the head of it in Chelsea. It would be, I'd be very happy to run into her at some point in the future and <laughs> discuss what happened. But where am I now with my work? I came to a point coming out of um, having my career so rattled where I thought, here I am at this point in my life, even though I went through this thing because I've behaved the way I have and have done my best to make my apologies, to correct my errors, to rebuild friendships where possible, where I treated people rather awfully because uh, I believed things that were not true. I found much to my I was very moved by the fact that overwhelmingly my reputation was not only intact, but ironically enhanced in a way, which I think is sort of a sad commentary on the fact that a lot of people might have handled it differently and just hoped it would go away. And it's just too embarrassing to go through that level of public mea culpa-ing and, you know, um, people will forget after a while. Well, at that point, I started to think, I draw every once in a while. When I travel, I usually pack a pad and colored pencils or watercolors. Um, the last seven or eight years, I've, I've been fortunate enough to have opportunities to speak at conferences in Greece, one of my favorite places to visit, and have done a couple of watercolors or drawings every time I'm there. Same for the UK, but it doesn't stick. Right now, I guess allegorically as well as actually, I'm putting my house in order. My wonderful dad passed about a year and a half ago, very advanced age, long life. And I'm a New Yorker. I lived most of my life in New York City, my favorite place. I love it dearly. But I've lived out in the New York countryside for many years now. And always in the back of my mind, well, in the publisher's clearinghouse, always my strategy for building my nest egg. And I remember, oh, you have to enter it first. I'll get an apartment back in Manhattan or Brooklyn or something and be surrounded by all that culture mm -hmm. and get back cracking. But I've learned to love it out here. And as of a year and a half ago, I inherited this little house and then faced with the reality of, I'm a, very much a creature of the 60s, not very practical, but very idealistic. And I don't have any pensions or annuities. I've uh, worked in the arts, in the theater, in the nonprofits, in ufology, which is always a way to make a lot of money. I am literally working on this house right now and the grounds, planning to stay here long term, have a new beautiful drafting table, 
when I set aside my career. I didn't throw out my art supplies. I carefully packed them up. They are now unpacked. And I'm guessing in the natural flow of things, I will start to work again at least semi-regularly by the end of this year. Where will I start? Well, I will start quite simply where I left off more than 40 years ago. I liked where I was at that point, especially before all of this UFO-related imagery came into the work. Not that that won't influence it to some degree. The creative process, part of the excitement of it is you're just channeling that internal divining rod and seeing where it will take you. And I love that feeling as a writer, that new paste, you know, allegorical white page in your typewriter or that blank computer screen is very much akin to that blank canvas or piece of paper or material that you're going to jump into your next creative act with and see through to completion. So it's all shaping up now. And I know my intentions are actually back where they haven't been in decades. One of the joys of of working with Bud Hopkins was he treated his life as a painter completely separate from his life as a world-regarded investigative writer and researcher. And I loved that. Um, it was great being in the studio and seeing a new work come about. It was very fluid for me to go from working at my desk and answering letters or proofreading his latest article. And I have to tell you, anybody that has read Bud's work, his books, his articles, his position papers, reviews, he was incredibly prolific and he was the damn best first draft writer I have ever known in my life. I know in part because of wonderful memories of him working away at his um, computer station on a little balcony in his larger art studio with my desk set up under it. And when he was powering away on a chapter in a book, as he would finish a page, he would print it out, take it off the printer and drop it. And it would come down like a leaf back and forth. And it would either land on the floor next to me on my desk or on my head. And on those occasions, when I could find a typo or an inverted preposition or a comma where there should be a semicolon, I had great fun torturing him with that, and he had great fun admitting that he had made an error. But otherwise, I would, in a breath, become his studio assistant and either set up an area for him to paint or clean up an area where he had been working, reset everything so he could pick it up the next day just fine. I had apprenticed with three well-known artists, one of them super famous um, when I was younger all in my 20s, Adolf Gottlieb was one of the last of the major international abstract expressionists right up there with Franz Klein and Jackson Pollock and de Kooning, you name it. So my roots were really in there. And I liked being the assistant. And now I'm my own person very much, but I learned so much working around extraordinarily creative and in many cases highly lauded individuals in, in creative work. For more information on Peter Robbins, 
check our show notes. Aliens and Artists is brought to you by The Liminal Muse, featuring one-on-one work with me, Stuart Davis. Sessions focus on creativity, spirituality, and paranormal experiences. The process emphasizes integral practices and methodologies. Go to theliminalmuse.com to book a session. That's M as in Mother Muse. The Liminal Muse. As Peter related in his episodes, he worked closely with Bud Hopkins for many years. Hopkins was a successful abstract expressionist painter. His works are in the permanent collections of the Whitney Museum, the Washington Gallery of Modern Art, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Museum of Modern Art, the Corcoran Gallery of Art, and the British Museum. He was also a seminal alien abduction researcher. Some of his most fascinating work pertained to how alien abduction impacted childhood development. He used children's original artwork extensively in sessions and enlisted clinicians to advance understanding of psychosocial issues in experiencers. The point I would like to make here, having to do with tiny children, is that according to the model set up by Eric Erickson, he has an idea that at each stage of development, the child should master a certain emotion or issue or whatever. And that's the way the child, having mastered that, moves on to the next stage. And he said, at first, the first stage, uh, the child has to, as a tiny baby, simply learn trust, which then can generate a kind of hope, a kind of sense of, of, I suppose, an optimistic view of seeing the world. The child has to trust that when the arms reach out to take the child out of the bed, that it's mommy or daddy or somebody who loves that child. And his point is that if that trust does not build up, the child's sense of hope and a feeling comfortable with the outer world begins to shrink. And it's my belief that many, many abductees, at the very outset of their lives, have that kind of trust and hope somewhat crushed or somewhat atrophied because of the experiences they're going through. Now these are children who cannot speak. These are little tiny children. But the kind of fear that manifests itself over and over again with these tiny children um, is something which obviously doesn't breed a kind of hopeful, happy, together, older child. And trust is an extremely important element, of course, in life, kind of hopefulness. Back in 1981 or 82, I was involved in a project to do some psychological testing of abductees. Uh, We hired a psychologist named Elizabeth Slater, and what we did was an absolutely blind test. We told her we had these, this group of people, we wanted her to administer the standard battery psychological tests, the MMPI and the Rorschach and the TAT and so forth. And we didn't tell her anything about this group, nothing about UFOs, nothing about anything. Uh, and since uh, she did some of the testing in my studio, I think she thought vaguely this had to do with creativity and art or something, which is fine. At any rate, we told her just two things. We're interested in any psychopathology that would uh, turn up in testing these people because, as you know, uh, 
we all remember the late Carl Sagan, every time he mentioned abduction, it was hallucination, you know, the <laughs> way he talked, delusion. Um, unfortunately, uh, that's diagnosing people he's never met for, for, in, for national TV, which is, I think, an unconscionable act. But at any rate, the thought that these people are having some kind of psychological problem. So we wanted to test to see if there are any major mental illnesses afoot here. The second thing was we wanted to know if there are any patterns. And she found when she tested the people that there was no mental illness, no um, psychopathology of any heavy sense whatsoever. But she said in terms of patterns, there were uh, three deficits, the euphemism, the term that they use, uh, that all of the abductees shared. All had low self-esteem. Even some of these people were extremely talented and successful and so on, but their self-image was, uh, again, atrophied. Um, the second thing was they all had problems feeling at home in their bodies, feeling a sense of control, feeling a sense that they owned their bodies. There was a certain dissociation between uh, the physical and their sense of self. Uh, even the sexuality was uh, a problem in those issues. And the third thing was they all had a major trouble with trust and with relationships. So we know that this, and this has been borne out in other tests, uh, working with other abductees. This was a blind test. She had no idea what these people had been through. But my point is that if those are basic characteristics of many, many abductees, and I think they are, that's been my experience over 25 years, then we have to look at some of the causes. And I'm, my point here is that when we go back to these early childhood experiences, uh, I think th we can account for some of these problems developing in the very, very first years of life. The subjects had a hard time with friendships and romantic relationships, and Hopkins would later reflect that this was nearly universal among abductees. Added to these three major themes, Hopkins would additionally identify a hypervigilance among abductees. The result of these findings was that psychopathology could not account for the symptoms presented by experiencers. I spoke to Slater personally. She confirmed to me over the phone that she was in fact dumbfounded when she found out that this population of subjects were experiencers of alien abduction. She recounted that basically this population had the same profile as any normal population of random people. She confirmed that psychopathology could not account for the patterns she observed, but that childhood trauma could. Slater also confirmed that art was an important component in this process, with each subject creating an artwork that signified elements of their presenting issue. Bud Hopkins would later note that children who are abducted often develop severe and unusual phobias around the ages of two to five. Insomnia, panic attacks, disproportionate emotional reactions to odd stimulus, and acute social anxieties were all profile points. These issues, which Hopkins would come to call collateral damage, were the direct result of childhood development being disrupted by the trauma of alien abduction. In regards to the role that art plays in the expression of the unconscious, Hopkins would say, quote, consciously or unconsciously, contemporary artists work to create harmony from distinctly jarring material, forcing warring ideas, materials, and spatial systems 
into a tense and perhaps arbitrary detente. Seen most broadly, the presence of the collage aesthetic is the sole defining quality of modernism in all the arts." End quote. Personally, I keep returning to this dichotomy of how Bud Hopkins both saw the insuperable integrative power of art to reconcile radically disparate realities, and yet how he also sealed off and separated his art from the concerns of alien abduction and contact. He remained a devoted supporter of abductees, and yet also refused to allow his artwork to be touched or influenced by the phenomenon. Check the show notes for links to Bud Hopkins' paintings and also his important books on the abduction phenomenon. Then a bird.